Hello, my name is Sarah Hakenny. Welcome to the Stinging Fly podcast. Each month we ask a writer to select and read the work of another writer from the Stinging Fly's back catalogue. This episode's a bit different. Earlier in the week, we took the podcast out of the studio and headed into the Irish Writers' Centre on Parnell Street to meet our guest, Kevin Barry, who was on a flying visit to Dublin. But I rather like the sounds of the city as the backdrop to his readings, so we might take it on the road again in the future as a way of engaging with writers around the country. Kevin Barry is the author of two novels, City of Bahan and Beetlebone, as well as two short story collections, Dark Lies the Island and There Are Little Kingdoms. Kevin Barry and Olivia Smith publish an annual anthology for the arts, Winter Papers, and his essays and short stories feature regularly in The Stinging Fly. I will let Kevin introduce his selection. The Woman with Too Many Mouths by Cathy Sweeney. I met the woman with too many mouths in the plaza at the start of summer. It was a warm night and smelled of melted grass. I would not normally have noticed such a woman, but I was in a mood where each step took me further into the realm where even the drift of a stranger's cigarette smoke suggested life both as it is and as it should be. And it was in this mood that the woman caught my attention. She was not my type. Crooked nose, legs marbled with muscle, gulag eyes. But as I saw her on that night of warm grass, she possessed a strange beauty. Only subsequently did I discover that the woman had too many mouths. In life, you rarely get what you want. You desire brown eyes and marry a girl with eyes of sky. The woman with too many mouths was almost ugly. Her beauty depended on the angle of the moon, her perception of my perception, and so on. But their mouth, it must be said, had no truck with subjectivity. I spoke to her that night on the plaza, It's a lovely evening. She answered and rain came from her mouth. Nothing unusual there, you say. And you are right, it was ordinary rain, soft and seasonless. I was dispirited. And that is why, some weeks later, when the woman lying beneath me, we were picnicking on the land, breathed hay onto my white shirt. It was so unexpected. I had ironed the shirt with great difficulty, the linen having been left too long in the sun, and watched transfixed as the fresh hay, reeking faintly of cattle and fertilizer, billowed against it before being carried away in the breeze. I planned to end my association with the woman She was, as I have said, not my type. But some nights later, moths, not two, but twenty, the ones you think are butterflies until someone says otherwise, flew out of the woman's mouth and around my bathroom. The woman had gone in there to douche. 
When she screamed, I thought there must be a spider in the closet, and it was with irritation that I uttered, I'm coming, I'm coming, and finally turned the handle on the bathroom door. In the stress, the woman was strangely beautiful. Each moth flew from her mouth, unique, blue, and timberellis, magenta, and phosphorina. I put my arms around the woman, and we stood there for a long time, shadowed here and there by tiny flickerings. The woman asked me to hit her. Nothing original in that, you say, and you are right. I have, of course, hit women before. As hard or as soft as they wished. But when I went to strike the woman, I lost all strength in the surface tension of air. I was shaken. Not to be able to hit a woman is as bad as not being able to make love. I said to myself, Dimitri, you are 32 years old. This woman is a fleeting glimpse of life. The world will always want servants, but what the world needs is writers. These thoughts of the world and of writing filled me with such a sense of destiny that I slept for days, and when I woke, I had forgotten all about the woman with too many mouths. Weeks passed. I visited my dear friend in the city. My dear friend was absorbed with a countess, and I with money, or more correctly, the lack of it. And there were times drinking coffee in the morning on the terrazzo, walking along the boulevard in the first cool of evening, when I had nothing to say to my dear friend and he nothing to say to me. And so when the Countess invited my dear friend to summer with her in the chateau, it was without sadness that we parted. To write my great novel, I needed to think cold thoughts. I almost wished for winter. I returned to the town and took a job as a typesetter, and because I knew nothing of typesetting, it was consuming. I got on with the other men, particularly a young man from Irkutsk. We shared our cigarette breaks and took to drinking schnapps in the bars when the shift was over. The young man kept his money in his trouser pocket, and when he stood up, coins fell to the floor. He had thick black hair, which he pushed from his face when I spoke to him, but left hanging when he spoke himself. I liked the young man. I liked the job. The rest of the time I slept. If it wasn't for fate flapping in the background, I might have been happy. And then, in one week, I received two telegrams. My friend had married the Countess, and my father had died, leaving me enough money to write my great novel. I have not yet described to you the town in which I lived. It was a dead place. The surrounding country was flat and offered no vantage point from which a vision might arise. Instead, the town projected itself in recurring images of black and white. What little architecture existed was built from porous stone. In sun it glared, and in rain it took on the appearance of sediment. 
Each street was an endless square around which people walked in straight lines, their faces dry from dry bread. I tell you this so that you will understand it was not a place to write a great novel. And so I accepted an invitation from my dear friend to visit him and his new wife in their chateau. I could expend many pages recounting my time at the chateau. <sighs> Ten pages on scenery and mood, at least four on the charms of the Countess, two on philosophical musings on the subject of friendship. But you would become bored and worse would forget all about the woman with too many mouths. In summary, the Countess enticed me into her world with ease until soon all thoughts were one question. Were her breasts, swaddled in heavy damask, as small as they appeared to be, I was infatuated. My dear friend understood everything and found everything amusing, and so life at the chateau was a vagary of fat and thin emotions until one morning the Countess announced that she was with child. I returned to the town and found that, despite the hospitality of my hosts, I had very little money. All those evenings at the card table, watching the flattened breasts of the Countess rise and fall had been expensive. I resumed my job as a typesetter, and days again smeared them to one another. The young man from Irkutsk bought a wallet and developed a habit of taking it in and out of his pocket. I saw less of him. At night I sat at my typewriter drinking wine until thoughts fell into a frozen sleep. And then I saw her again, the woman with too many mouths. It was a cold night. The rain was endlessly vertical. In lamplight, the woman's nose veered to the side and her arms were sinewed from carrying heavy buckets. We walked together through cobbled streets and each time I hand-brushed hers, berries fell from her mouth, black and blue and crimson. In my room, the woman took off all her clothes and drank red cider until her mouth was swollen and her breath was sticky. Again she asked me to hit her and again I could not. We slept for days far away from each other in the bed and when I woke the woman with too many mouths was gone. Months passed. My dear friend, who was wintering in the city, came to visit. He had grown fat and suffered from heartburn. The Countess was still luxurious, he told me. But it always with child. At night we sat in the lounges of hotels, drinking cocktails and smoking cigars. One evening, while my dear friend lay slumped in an easy chair, I took comfort in a meretricious young girl from the countryside. But at a crucial juncture, I could not proceed. The downed hair of the girl's back had the texture of hay, and her skin reeked faintly of K. 
cattle and fertilizer. The experience of loss is not a sloped gradient. It is random black dots on an endless linear. At times, drinking with friends in cafes, laughing at the absurdity of this or that, questions printed themselves on my brain. Did I love at all? Who can be sure whether he loves or not? And I would forget all about the woman with too many mouths until hay poured once more like rain inside me. And then I saw her again, the woman with too many mouths. They say coincidence is only for stories, and I'm sure they are right, but the night I saw her smelled of melted grass, and I was again in a mood of strange ascension. I sat down in the cafe beside her. The waiter fluttered by, and I ordered a pastis. I raised my eyebrows, but the woman shook her head, although her glass, I noticed, was almost empty. I lit a cigarette and drew my shoulders in, a passing stranger glancing at the woman could not have told from her body that a man was close to her. The smoke from my cigarette wafted into the woman's hair and she began to speak. As I listened, the tiniest flakes of whitened grey released themselves from her mouth. So light and casual I thought I was seeing things. I wasn't. As I inhaled, the woman exhaled. I squashed my half-smoked cigarette into the ashtray and the woman stopped speaking. The waiter arrived with the pastis and I drank the sweet liquid in one mouthful, stuck a note under the sugar bowl and walked out into the night. The woman, to my surprise, came after me and in my room anchored herself to me, making waves of our bodies until I could no longer tell one from another. I kissed her mouth and ink came from it, staining the bedsheets and soaking through to the mattress. Again she asked me to hit her and this time I hit her on the mouth harder and harder until ink and blood were one and the woman with too many mouths disappeared. Years passed. I wrote my great novel. I could write a hundred pages about writing my great novel, but who would read it? My novel was published, the reviews were favourable, it sold within expectation and in nothing. What else is there? What a ridiculous story, I hear you say. There are far greater torments in life than this. What about debt or no money for boots or the violence that accompanies each age? I hear you say this, and yet I do not turn my back when you spit in the dust and stamp on it. Why did you pick these two stories? I picked two because they are they are short, um, and and I wanted to to I wanted. I'm I'm such a martyr for these stories. I wanted I wanted to get more than more than one onto the air of the uh, 
of the Sting and Fly podcast. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I've been seeing stories by Cathy Sweeney um, in the Sting and Fly and elsewhere, I think in the Dublin Review as well, over the last few years. And I'm always uh, immediately drawn to them, like, like, like a moth. To, to, to a flame. Um, and do you know that much about her? Because she's quite elusive. No, no, I don't know her at all. Would you believe very madly and coincidentally, I met her for the first time last night. Um, she was at she was at a book launch by Desmond Hogan's new book of stories. So I said hello to to Cathy for the first time um, last night. Um, and it's 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 like talking about these stories is kind of is going to be as strange and elusive as the stories themselves because they're very hard to it's very hard to say what's going on yeah. in any kind of way and you could use all sorts of words about them that wouldn't really do them justice you know like I hate the word surreal <laughs> so, like surreal always brings to my mind kind of uh, you know fish on a bicycle kind of surrealism yeah. and the, these stories are kind of if it makes any sense kind of quietly surreal or yeah. something or kind of naturalistically surreal um she reminds me of lots of writers, but then she's like no one else, you know. I think she's kind of kind of got a unique style. Reading this one just there as I, as I, as I read it for the recording, um, in places I was thinking of things like early, um, like the early Beckett stories, like the Camative, and like First Love and things like that. And other times there's a kind of um, a kind of a slightly kind of haughty tone that brings you in mind of writers like Thomas Bernard or someone. But she's, she, she's always very much her, um, her own woman on the page. And just some of the lines, I mean, the experience of loss is not a sloped gradient. It is random black dots on an endless linear. Um, no idea exactly what that, what that means, but I'm sure it's for real, you know. It's it, it, it. She absolutely hits these notes um, in her prose and in her storytelling. And that I mean, she's writing from the perspective of a man, this Dimitri fella. Yeah. But he's a brute. Yeah, you yeah. It's, it's very unusual to have a woman who she's writing about. You know, whatever that means. This. Yeah. She, the, all all the bit about all the hit me kind of stuff that's going on in it really. Any time, like I've read the story a few times now um, kind of getting ready to record it and stuff for this and that, that keeps reminding me of bits of the, the, the David Lynch film Blue Velvet one of my all time favourite films um, the scenes with, with, with Isabella Rossellini and Kyle MacLachlan um, came up and I, I think it's one of the things about about great stories really is that it, it sends your mind drifting into the kind of um, tunnels of, of other work that you've loved in various forms and, and, and media. Um, I love the, the way with this story and with anything I've read by, by Cathy Sweeney. Um, it seems to, to proceed line by line on its own kind of internal logic, I guess. Um, it's a kind of, in places it feels like a kind of a senselessness that makes perfect sense. Um, so yeah, but it, I mean, it's very difficult to say as you can with so many stories, well, this is about this. And I mean, with every sto story ever written by anyone, you can always say that it's about one thing on the surface and it's always kind of really about something, something else, else. Under, 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 just under the skin mm. of the story. Well, and in some way, I think this is kind of, it's kind of about aging okay. in some way, maybe, this story. It's about getting older. Um, 
it's about expectations kind of changing and drifting in and out of, of our own perspectives as we get older. Is it about writing enough? I guess it is. About- no, it very much is on the surface. And I think it's about, about creating, you know, things and the strange little um, mindsets we get ourselves into and we, the way we get ourselves head up. But that's one of the surface things going on in the story. But underneath, I think it's about the way everybody drifts strangely as they get older and you kind of become unmoored from from the creature you used to be even a few short months or years ago um and it's a process as as it as it as you go on through life that becomes more pronounced you know i'm i'm 87 years old now and uh <laughs> and 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 you know it's it's weird in your 20s and early 30s i think you're still in lots of ways still very much involved in a kind of a teenage mindset and that kind of stuff that was so critically important to you when you're 19 and 20 and then over your course of your 30s and 40s that you start to drift away from that and 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 it's a very sad kind of process and a very strange one but there are kind of there is kind of compensation for it because suddenly you 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 realize there's a great kind of um what you actually have suddenly is this great shadow behind you and it's a great wealth of experience of the past you know um you have so many um connections with people and friendships and memories good and bad and they create a kind of a ballast that are enough that are just enough to get you through life so is it a better point to be writing from in yeah. your old age my old age yeah I'm, I'm delighted that my first book of stories um didn't appear with the stinging fly press until I was, I think I was 63 or something when I came out. I was 37, but it was, yeah, I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm pleased I, I didn't write, um, didn't publish a book of, of stories when I was younger, in my mid-twenties or something like that, mainly because I was a ferocious fucking idiot in my twenties, you know, and, and I would have so much to say about anything. It's different. I think, actually, it's different with women writers and men writers. I think, I think women get their quicker uh, and I know from reading as, as, as an editor or a co-editor myself for the journal Winter Papers I know from reading submissions from very young writers it seems to me up until the kind of mid-twenties that the, the girls are way ahead of the boys in terms of a kind of an emotional uh, maturity I think, I think the young fellas tend, tend to start catching up a bit as, 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 as it goes on uh, you know, know. But <laughs> maybe not <laughs> Yeah, just kind of under the surface. I'm very interested as well in the um, in the setting of it. You know, it's a kind of an unnamed city, and it seems to be a vaguely kind of a European Russian uh, kind place of, yeah. or some sort of Middle Europe kind of feel. And a time it. where it's kind of feels where it could be anywhere. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's it's. Um, I think it's very much a story that comes out of literary influences. You know, put put put. It mixes them all together so 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 skillfully that it becomes its own thing, you know. And and it, 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 she's she's really like no one else you could you could put your finger on. I think. Have you energy to read the second one? Absolutely, Great. yeah, can't wait. The Long Lost Father, by Kathy Sweeney. Once upon a time, there was a woman who found her long-lost father on a busy street on a busy afternoon. Although the woman had never met him, she knew immediately that the man in front of her was her long-lost father. 
Without thought, although the woman was a thoughtful person, she touched her father's cardigan, introduced herself and offered a brief CV. Born Dublin, 1969. Went to school, boring. Won prizes, boring. Moved to a small village in the countryside, boring. Got a boyfriend, boring. Went to college, boring. Got a job, boring. Took a year off to go traveling, boring. Bought an apartment, boring. Got engaged to an interesting man, boring. Walked down a busy street on a busy afternoon searching for an artisan cheesemonger featured in the supplement of a Sunday newspaper. Boring. Bought cheese for a dinner party due to be held that night for fiancé and friends. Boring. Of course, the woman did not actually say the word boring and her CV was meant as conversation. But the kind of conversation designed to report the self as interesting and therefore boring. The long-lost father also had a CV, but he had lost it. On that busy street, on that busy afternoon, when the woman found her long-lost father, she felt the invisible ribbon of right place, right time unfurl within her. As her fingers played in the brown wool of his cardigan and she smelled the familiar sourness of his sour tobacco breath, the woman discovered something for which she had no name and so settled in the end and with dissatisfaction on peace. The woman and her long-lost father went for a drink in the basement of a Georgian hotel. They had several drinks in quick succession until the conversation became untrivial. Later, the woman recalled the long-lost father's eyes as brown, but she could never be sure. He had a face made for winter, sharp chin that balked at razors, skin that pinpricked and flushed, with an uncharacteristic lack of empathy, the woman broke off her engagement to her fiancé via text message, expecting him to be happy that she found her long-lost father on a busy street on a busy afternoon. But the long-lost father spent too long in the pub talking to men about dogs. In restaurants, he ordered food for both of them. He spoke to taxi drivers about sport, pulling correct banknotes from the pocket of his trousers. He lit other people's cigarettes, ate slowly, showered quickly, read everything, and went for walks on his own. The woman wanted to overwhelm a landscape of bland, but was afraid of the consequences. The more perfect the moment, the more imperfect the aftermath. So when she went to bed with the long-lost father, they made love in social realism mode her breasts sliding into her armpits his erection tentative warm liquid dry kisses that is how these things go the long-lost father took a job managing an enclave of holiday villas in a picturesque seaside town 
On the occasions the woman visited him, she spent the time sipping French wine in poorly heated accommodation. There followed the distemper of nightly phone calls and emails that bypassed mood. The woman was sure it was the end, but each time she tried to lose the long-lost father, a broken toy got stuck in her chest, slapping against her ribs, aching her muscles red. And so, in the end, with his thin towels and plastic bag life, the long-lost father was found forever. It is a rare thing, but some symbols refuse to be discarded. After the long-lost father died, the woman never married. In later years, she lived in an apartment overlooking a park. She particularly liked squirrels and frost. In the mornings, the woman made coffee in an expensive coffee maker, looking out at a statue of the long-lost father positioned under a tree. The woman paid a large sum to have the statue made and a larger sum to have it erected in the park. She told everyone that the statue was that of an important person. It was damp under the three rain-wet branches and poor soil where nothing grew. The long-lost father held a cigarette in his hand and gazed at the sky, the smoke from the cigarette merging with the smoke of the sky. The woman was happy. This was how she wanted the long-lost father to be, slowed to camera speed, caught forever in two-tone light. Something in the composition calling her to a place for which she had no name, and so settled in the end, and with dissatisfaction on home. Yeah, it seems a shame to kind of analyse it too much as well. Like the two things that kind of stand out that you kind of bookends the story with are home and peace. And peace, peace and home. yeah. Um, again, you know, um, and I, I, I really love this story as well. Um, and again, very reluctant to try and sort of pin any particular meaning on it. Um, I know that's something I, I, I find in my own work that I end up writing about again and again and again is kind of the inability that we have to um, step out from the shadows of our own past and our, and our own lives and, and maybe there's something remotely similar to that kind of um, emotion or feeling coming through in, in, in this piece. I mean, I think we should kind of say as well that they're very funny stories, you know, and they're very entertaining. Um, there's a real kind of sharp dry wit um, that comes into them again and again uh, but yeah I mean uh, and what she has as well is she has um, like this story it's a page and a half she has marvellous economy you know she can um, she can make a world come very convincingly to life in, in, inside half a page and this is this is the as anyone who, who tries it regularly will know, this is the, the incredibly difficult thing with short stories as a form, and it's why it makes them such a difficult, um, such a innervatingly difficult form, is because you have 
so little uh, room in which to succeed. You know, you have to pin the reader to the page inside inside the first couple of paragraphs, um, and you have to create a world that holds in all its dimensions and that's real and that feels true, um, and it's an unteachable skill. Um, but she, she just has it naturally. You're immediately into the world. This one is closer to home, I guess, than 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 the um, than than the previous story we heard. Um, it feels more like an Irish story. He feels like an Irish father yeah. to me, <laughs> um, and you can kind of you can kind of see him at this kind of um, this kind of annoying kind of charm, maybe that that presents itself in this kind of ease of interaction with, with men in pubs talking about dogs. My favourite line actually is the, the men in pub talking about dogs and the taxi drivers and all the rest of it. But, um, but she kind of seems happier when he's as a statue and she can, he's just outside the window. Yeah, because I think then she can settle into the kind of fable of yeah. the past, you know, when, when it's at a safe enough distance that it's not still enacting itself around her kind of. Yeah. Again, we're trying to put meaning on a story that's necessarily kind of um, ephemeral, you know, and, mm. and that kind of wafts along. Because um, as well as the humour, she's not afraid to just like whack us one as a reader where you're kind of going along with Oh, yeah. And the last guy not being able to be violent. And then this is we're chugging along with the long lost father and then all of a sudden they're sleeping together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a definitely a kind of a nice clammy kind of note that comes into it you know um, and you can kind of feel it coming very quick and you're going Jesus where's where's this going and then she goes there she's a really brave writer you know um, but yeah and it's 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 a great title as well The Long Lost Father it just um, I don't know why I, I don't know why it does so but I find it a very kind of moving story you know um, and I think it's because it's, it's, it's got I used the word clammy a second ago, but that kind of clamminess of um, family life, you know, which is made out of love and also lots of other horrible things as well around it. And it's something where we try to escape from all our lives, but something that we're drawn back to as well, you know. Um, and it's a very difficult thing to get on the page in black and white, that kind of feeling. Um, but somehow this, this story achieves it, I think. I imagine we, 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 we'll see um, further collections and, and, and books from Cathy Kathy Sweeney and everybody should, 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 should make a beeline for them when they see them and for her stories when they appear in, in, in the fly and in other journals because I think she definitely has something very special. That's it for this episode of the Stinging Fly podcast. My thanks to our guest Kevin Barry who read two stories by Cathy Sweeney taken from the summer 2011 and summer 2012 editions of the Stinging Fly. I'd also like to thank the Irish Writers' Centre for hosting us. My name is Sarah Kenny and I'll be back with you again next month. Take care.